Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Stockwell service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. This morning we are continuing our series. Uh, we've called it our Consuming Fire. Have we called it that? Yes, we have. I should know this. Um, and I want to talk to us this morning about the importance of both living with vision and also cultivating a holy ambition to make that vision happen. So you may have heard this proverb before, Proverbs 29:18. It says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there's no vision, the people perish. And I don't know kind of what word picture that sums up in your mind, the idea of perishing. Uh, to me, it brought to mind the idea of fruit that has fallen off a tree, and basically it starts to rot and starts to go off. And it's this idea that when you're not connected to the life of the tree, when the fruit falls and then it, it just it rots. And so part of, I think, what this proverb is saying is that when we, when we or as a community, when we're not connected to the life or the energy of a big vision, then we can start to spoil or decay. We can start to go off. Or another way to think about being visionless is to be directionless. Actually, this proverb, um, uh, Proverbs 29, this saying is quite hard to translate. It's basically a Hebrew idiom. It's a Hebrew saying that doesn't have a direct translation, which is why if you look at different translations of the Bible, sometimes it says, um, where there's no vision, the people perish. Other times it says, without vision, the people cast off restraint, or the people are discouraged. And that's because that word that we translate as perish, or cast off restraint, or um, discourage, is a word used to describe what happens when a woman's hair was untied, which is kind of weird, which is why we don't naturally translate it easily. So at the time, good Hebrew women would wear their hair tightly tied up on their head. It was orderly, it was neat in its place. And so the writer of this proverb is saying that when a person or a community isn't constrained by a clear vision for their life together, it's like hair that has been completely set free, blowing in the wind. So we, as you may know, we have two small children, uh, two girls with long hair. Every morning we try and give vision to their hair. We constrain it in the morning. And it often seems by the end of the day they have cast off their vision. And the hair is blowing wherever it wants, often with food and paint in, because they are both at junior school. And so I feel it's a little bit like that, without vision, when we don't have a vision, when we can't discern what God is doing in us or through us, when we don't have any hope for the future, it's easy to become directionless, easy to get distracted by the things that are just kind of blowing all around us, getting blown from one thing to the next, easy to do just the things that everyone else is doing or the things that we are expected to do. Without vision, it's easy to get discouraged, even so discouraged that we kind of stop moving forward at all. Without a clear vision, we just kind of settle for how things are, even when those things may not be that great, and we can feel like we've got no energy, no life to make things happen. Now, I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently, the beginning of the year, new year, new decade. Actually, Jax and I both turned 40 this year, so bring with that a midlife crisis type of thing. And I was thinking about vision and praying for vision for this next season of our lives uh, for church. And I was reminded of the story of the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. So if you don't know, Habakkuk lived at a pretty bleak time in Israel's history. By this time, the kingdom of Israel had split into two different kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which was called the kingdom of Israel, um, didn't have a capital city, had Samaria as its capital. Um, and by this time in the life of Israel, it had actually been conquered by the Assyrians. And so the people had been carried off into exile. And then you have the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, which is where Habakkuk lived. 
And the southern kingdom was where you had the capital city, Jerusalem, you had the temple, and the kings from the southern kingdom were all descended from the line of David, the mighty King David of Goliath fame. But actually, at this point in Israel's life, when Habakkuk is living, the southern kingdom isn't that much better off than the northern kingdom. So they had started worshipping foreign gods in such a way that they brought the idols into the temple to worship, which was like a huge thing with this temple that had been built to serve Yahweh, the God of Israel, now being served, uh, used to serve other gods, and they kind of allowed the practice of cultic prostitution there. One of the gods that they worshipped was the god Molech, and he encouraged child sacrifice, and so that has started happening in the southern kingdom as well. And effectively, the king and the ruling class were oppressing the whole people and basically treating them as slave labor. So it was a really, really bleak time. And you can read all about this in the Old Testament books, 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. Or if you want a five-minute summary, which is amazing, go to this place, thebibleproject.com, and it will lay it all out for you in five minutes. Fantastic. So that is the context for Habakkuk. And so you have Habakkuk, which is essentially just this man's prayer journal. It's very short, just a few chapters, and it's just him writing out his prayers to God and then writing the response that he hears from God. Basically, laments and questions and then God's answers. And it starts this way. It starts, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? How long is such a common prayer in the Old Testament scriptures? And it's effectively the cry of the visionless. It's effectively saying, God, I just can't see what you are doing. Everything looks bleak. Nothing looks the way it should be. And you don't seem to be present. You don't seem to be doing anything. You don't seem to be at work any, anywhere. I cry out to you, and I hear nothing in return. What is going on? And when I say that this is the cry of the visionless, I don't say that in a judgmental way at all. I don't blame Habakkuk for feeling that way. I think any of us would feel that way living in his time. I think probably there are many people in the room right now feeling that way. Where is God in all of this chaos that we see around us? But do you see what Habakkuk does with his questions? He takes them to God. And I love the way that he pretty much demands an answer from God. This isn't a polite prayer. This is a covenantal prayer. This is a man who knows that his God is for him and it's okay to be a little bit angry with him. And so he's not worried about offending God. He just kind of unloads his confusion, his disappointment, even his anger at the way things are. And he expresses them all to God. And then God answers, God answers him with this incredible promise. God says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Do you notice the tense that God uses here? He doesn't say, I am going to do a work. He says, I am doing a work. I'm already at work, behind the scenes, moving things forward. And he says, the future that I have in store for you is so much greater than you could ever possibly imagine. So if I told you about it, you wouldn't believe me. It's that good. So Habakkuk thinks he knows what he needs for life to get better, and that is for the kingdom of Judah basically to be judged, for the wickedness to be swept away, maybe by some like, other foreign army to come in and then kind of reset everything. So that's what he's looking for, for wickedness to be judged in kind of a violent way. And you see this in the Old Testament, there's a lot of violence there. But what God has in mind is more than the continuous rise and fall of empires. It's more than the endless cycle of a kingdom of violence and oppression being stopped often violently, by another kingdom who then turns into a kingdom of violence and oppression who then also has to be stopped by another kingdom. God has something much more in mind than that. 
He gives Habakkuk a vision of the future where violence and oppression are themselves stopped and done away with. Where peace isn't won at the edge of the sword, but with another display of God's mighty power. And so he refers back to the Exodus, where God brings the people of Israel out of Egypt. And he gives Habakkuk a new vision of a new Exodus, an Exodus that is to come in the future, where his people will be rescued from evil and wickedness and oppression for good. Which is obviously a promise about Jesus, isn't it? Jesus who came to destroy evil not by killing his enemies, but by being killed by his enemies. Not by ending his enemies by destroying them, but by turning them into his friends. Now Habakkuk wasn't to know this incredible gloriousness of the gospel to come, but he's given this vision of a future exodus which he can hold onto, which changes everything for him. It changes his heart and it gives him hope. In chapter 3, he's no longer crying out, God, where are you? He says, yes, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I know what you did in the past. And I do stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. Habakkuk gets a vision from God, and he prays it back to him. His faith in the goodness, have been, in the goodness of God has been restored by this encounter with God. His hope is now in a future that God has promised, and it strengthens him, enables him to pray, Do it now. Do it now, God. Do it now. Repeat your awesome deeds. In fact, this vision that God gives him of the future is so powerful that at the end of Habakkuk, he's able to pray this incredible prayer of trust that says, though the fig tree still doesn't produce figs and the crops still fail and there are still no cattle in the stalls, basically the the effect of living in an oppressive society, he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. He's basically saying, even though nothing has changed right now, I will still trust in you. I will wait for the things that you have promised. I will live for that. And that is so great. I can even rejoice and have joy in the waiting. A new vision from God changed everything for Habakkuk. It gave him hope. It enabled him to live with a new joy. And I believe that's what God wants to give many of us today, a new vision for the future. In effect, he wants to restore our spiritual sight, to give us sight beyond sight, which is a Thundercats reference, which some of you in the room might know, and others are too young. But yeah, that's what he wants to do. He wants to expand our ideas of what is possible. He wants to give us hope so that even if nothing changes right now, the vision of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, a kingdom of love, a kingdom of justice coming to us, working in our lives, working in our communities, in our city, he wants to give us an expansive, exciting, hope-inducing vision that we are able to live now with patience and joy and trust. But not only that, so that it will motivate us to actually see it come about, to bring his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. Because having this big kingdom vision of what is in store, I think quite naturally leads to living with a godly ambition. And that's because any well-articulated, imagination-capturing vision leads naturally to living with ambition. To illustrate this, let me tell you a story that some of you may have heard before. So at the turn of the 20th century, as you may know, there began what is now known as the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. And over 25 years, 17 different major expeditions went to the Antarctic from 10 different countries. They said they were going for scientific research, but really they weren't. It was a race. Who could be first to the South Pole? And then who could be first across the pole? There's kind of like this national pride attached to it and personal notoriety. And as we know now, even expeditions to the poles now, they're pretty arduous. 
They're feats of endurance that push people's physical and emotional limits to breaking point. So you can imagine how much tougher this was 100 years ago. Basically, there's a big coat and some food and some dogs. Go for it. It was known to be extremely hard going. There was a real possibility of death through exposure and starvation. But that didn't appear to put people off. So when the explorer Ernest Shackleton advertised for a 56-man crew in 1914 for his trans-Arctic expedition, he wanted to be the first person to cross from one coast to the other through the South Pole. He reportedly put this advert in the Times newspaper. It says, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. I mean, that's quite a job advert, isn't it? We're advertising for people to work for the church at the moment. Can you imagine we did something like that? Men and women wanted for unreliable district line journey to Parsons Green. Smaller than private sector wages. Constant danger of people no longer caring at all what you do for a living. But eternal honor and recognition in, spite, uh, in case of success and even failure, because God is a gracious God and it's great to work for him. I'm not sure that would do it for us, but that did it for Shackleton. Do you know how many people applied? 5,000 men and women saw that advert and thought, yeah, count me in for this. What was their motivation? Well, like we say, obviously it wasn't pay. They got paid hardly anything. But they were promised that in the slim chance that they managed to cross the freezing, barren, dangerous landscape of the Antarctic without dying and make it back to the UK, they would be waiting for them honor and recognition, that they would be greeted as national heroes, the world would know that they were the first people to cross the Antarctic. And actually, they didn't make it. You probably know the story. The ship got iced in. They were there for over a year, and they managed to make it out again. And most people have forgotten about Ernest Shackleton. They know the other guys, but they didn't make it. They didn't get that honor and recognition. But there was a vision that Shackleton gave, and this whole idea, this romantic idea of exploration, that was in the cultural air at the time, that awoke the ambition of 5,000 people that they were willing to risk their life to achieve it. Now, you may agree or disagree whether that vision was a vision worth giving your life for. I don't know. But those explorers are a good example of people who've seen a vision of the future, seen a vision of something they want to be part of, something bigger than themselves, a future they believed in so much that they were willing, that they were ambitious enough to risk everything to make it a reality. Which I guess begs the question, is ambition a good thing or a bad thing? What do you think? If I said, uh, afterwards I was chatting and I said, oh, I've got this friend, they're really ambitious, would you think I was being complimentary about them or negative about them? Well, the Oxford Dictionary defines ambition as a strong desire to do or achieve something, which I guess that's relatively positive, isn't it? And it goes on, ambition is a desire and determination to achieve success, which I guess rests a lot on how you are defining success in that. Similarly, if you look up ambitious, you get a quite neutral definition. An ambitious plan or piece of work is regarded as difficult to achieve. Like Veganuary, for me. Very ambitious. Too ambitious, in fact, for me to achieve. It defines an ambitious person as someone who has or shows a strong desire and determination to succeed. Again, this all kind of falls on how you're defining success in that. But interestingly, if you go online to an online thesaurus and you search for synonyms for ambitious, it is not long before you get words like this. Pushy predatory, power-hungry, striving, driven, anxious for power or fame, scheming, aggressive. Which I don't know, it doesn't sound very Jesus-like to me. 
According to the Oxford Dictionary, our very word ambition has its roots in the Latin word that means to go around canvassing for votes. So we came up with this word, invented it to describe those who wanted to be in power. And so I think it's probably quite natural for some of us to back away from the idea of being ambitious. We can all probably think of examples of people, either people we know well or people we just know about, who are ambitious for the, what looks like the wrong things, ambitious in a way that is damaging to them and to their close relationships, to the world around them, or whose ambition is just seems to be fueled by the wrong thing. In an interview for The New Yorker, Bruce Springsteen, who's one of the most famous musicians in the world, one of the most successful musicians, he opened up about the way his troubled relationship with his dad has shaped his life and work. And he quoted the American producer T-Bone Burnett, who said that rock and roll is a long history of young men shouting at their fathers, look at me, look at me. And he's basically saying that is what drove most of his career just wanting this connection with this man that he loved but didn't feel love from. He was saying he came to realize that his ambition was driven by a desire to be noticed, to be loved by the one person who really mattered to him. And I don't think that's peculiar to the music industry, do you? People trying to experience love through success or power or fame. I'm sure that many of us, to a greater or lesser extent, can identify with that wanting to be successful however we define success for ourselves out of a desire to be noticed, to be considered important, to be known as someone, to be loved. Now, for those of us who understand and experience the truth of the gospel, that should change things, shouldn't it? The truth that we, that you, are so loved, that the creator of heaven and earth sent Jesus to rescue you by defeating evil and death on the cross. The incredible good news that there is nothing we can ever do to make God love us any more than he does right now. And nothing we can ever do to make God love us any less than he does right now. That should keep us from striving to be successful in order to finally prove that we are worth loving, shouldn't it? But should an understanding and experience of this kind of love keep us from striving at all? Should knowing that we are loved keep us from being ambitious? if so much of ambition is driven by wanting to be loved? Well, the Apostle Paul was someone who obviously understood and had a deep experience of the love of God. He could write things like this in Galatians, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, in Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me. That defined his life, knowing that he was loved by Jesus so much that Jesus gave himself for him. It was the motivating force that drove him. But then he also wrote things like this, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal. And he could write about how he worked harder than all the other apostles were working, how he toiled and labored night and day. In a letter to the Corinthians, he lists all the ways that working hard for the gospel, that being ambitious for the gospel had personally cost him. He was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he suffered hunger and cold and on and on and on. So it seems that whilst knowing the love of Jesus can and hopefully will stop us striving to be successful in order to prove ourselves, to be loved, it will stop us being ambitious for the wrong things and for the wrong reasons. And understanding what the love of Jesus came to do, which is not just to transform me and give me a personal relationship with God, although that is obviously vitally important, but to transform the whole world, to turn it right side up. That should motivate us to be incredibly ambitious for God. 
We should be an ambitious people who attempt great things for God and expect great things from God, to quote the great 19th century missionary William Carey. But I think the sad truth is that as we look back through church history, men and women like Carey have often been in the minority. In Mark Sayers' excellent new book, Reappearing Church, he tells the story of Douglas Hyde, who came to faith in Christ while editor of The Daily Worker, which is the newspaper of the British Communist Party. So in 1948, Hyde's been like a communist his whole life, working towards this, and then he has an experience of God. He connects with the truth of the gospel. He becomes a Christian, and he gets disillusioned with communism's power to save and transform the world. And so he kind of leaves that behind and goes, and he joins the church. And although he has come to faith in this big Jesus with a big vision of the future, a big vision that will see the world transformed in the way he wants to see it, he says he's shocked by what he found when he came into the church. Coming straight, as it were, from one world to another, he writes, it astounded me that there should be people with such numbers at their disposal and with the truth on their side, going around weighed down by the thought that they were a small, beleaguered minority, carrying on some sort of an impossible fight against the big majority. The very concept was wrong. Psychologically, it was calamitous. Hyde had left a political movement that although only contained about 45,000 members, never saw itself as a fragile minority. Instead, they saw their minority position as an exciting challenge, something to be leveraged in order to change the world. And he then came to a church which, yes, although was still in minority within the wider society, was far more substantial, far better resourced, far better connected, and yet seemed to see itself through the lens of fragility and defeat. Hyde's insight coming from the Communist Party to church was how vitally important not only having a big vision was, but having the ambition to get it done. The church that he entered didn't have a vision for the world changing now. It had a vision for the world changing way down the future when Jesus returned, but it felt like there's nothing we can do about this right now. They're just kind of holding on. And so because of that, the church had no ambition. It wasn't asking its people to risk anything, to try anything great, to do anything hard. The Communist Party, on the other hand, had vision and ambition to spare. And because of that, it was full of dedicated people, willing to give their lives to a cause, wanting to turn the world upside down. In his latest book on the road with St. Augustine, James K. Smith draws on the life and teachings of St. Augustine, who was a fourth century African bishop, Augustine of Hippo. And he makes this insightful and pretty challenging observation about ambition. And I warn you, this is really challenging. He writes, if you keep walking around the phenomenon of ambition, you'll start to note a couple of features. First, the opposite of ambition is not humility. It is sloth, passivity, timidity, complacency. We sometimes like to comfort ourselves by imagining the ambitious are prideful and arrogant so that those of us who never risk, never aspire, never launch into the deep get to wear the moralizing mantle of humility. But this imagining is often just thin cover for a lack of courage, even laziness. Playing it safe isn't humble. Those are tough words, <laughs> challenging words, convicting words. For me personally, because if I'm honest, I think one of the biggest things that stopped me being ambitious for God isn't a theological or a philosophical objection to the idea of being ambitious. It's not a reaction to other people I've seen being ambitious in a very damaging way. It is timidity. It is a lack of courage. It is fear. Fear that I'm not enough. Fear that I'm just not up to it. 
Fear that I don't have it in me. Fear that I'll fail. Fear that we as a community can't really do this. And this is why Ephesians chapter 3 is so incredibly helpful to me. And I'm going to end with this. In Ephesians 3, the Apostle Paul writes down this incredible prayer to the church in Ephesus. And he starts off by praying that out of God's glorious riches, he would strengthen them with power through the Holy Spirit and their inner being so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. And he moves on to say that being rooted and established in love, you may have power to grasp or hold on to the mind-blowing truth that Jesus' love for you is wider and deeper and higher longer than you could ever imagine. And he prays that they will continue to know and experience this love that surpasses all understanding, that they might be filled to the full measure of the fullness of God. I mean, that's quite a prayer, isn't it? If you were ever stuck for praying when you're praying with someone and you want to know what to pray, just whip open Ephesians 3 and pray that over someone. If you're here this morning feeling like your ambition is fueled more from a desire to be loved than anything else, pray that over yourself. But then he ends with this incredible line. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine according to his power, which sounds very Habakkuk 1, doesn't it? Remember that God saying to Habakkuk, I'm going to do more in your day than you would believe, even if you were told? Paul is almost saying the exact same thing here, that God is so powerful, he's able to do more than we could ask or imagine. But then he says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, that is at work within us. Within us, not out there, not God's power at work out there. God's work, his power at work in us within you, within me. This is just incredible, isn't it? The power of God is at work in us to bring these things about. To God's plan for the redemption of the world and the renewal of all things. His plan to bring the kingdom of Jesus to earth just like it is in heaven. God's plan to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. His plan to work in our day in a way that we would not believe even if we were told is going to happen through his power at work in us not out there in us. I mean, that is an incredible thought, isn't it? Earlier on in the same letter, Paul again prays another incredible prayer over them. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power, he says, that power that is available for us who believe is the same power as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. The same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the grave is now available in you and I. When we put our trust in Jesus, when we invite him to fill us with his spirit, fill us with his love, fill us with his power, Which is why I want to stand here this morning unapologetically and confidently and declare to you and declare to myself, because in doing this I'm preaching as much to myself, I need to know this probably more than anyone at this point, that God is calling us to attempt great things for him. That is what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to live with a holy ambition, to strive, to work hard, to attempt to do great things in order to see the kingdom of Jesus come in our lives, in our communities, in our city, in the world. He's calling us to set the captives free, to release the prisoners from darkness, to bind up the brokenhearted, to bring good news to the poor. He's calling us to stand up for justice and righteousness, to speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. 
He's calling us to make beautiful works of art that help open people's heart to the very idea of the transcendent, that there is resurrection life available and forgiveness and healing and hope. He's calling us to innovate, to create wealth, to create jobs, to write new laws, to reform social services, to educate our youth and everything else that is needed to bring top-down change and bottom-up change at the same time. And if that sounds too big and you think, I just can't do that, you're right. You can't by yourself. But God isn't calling you to do this by yourself. First, he's placed you within community. This is something for us to do in this part of London to work out what is it as a community that we are called to do? How are we called to bring the kingdom of Jesus to earth in this place? But he's also not just us and us together. He's saying, no, the power that raised Christ from the dead is available for this. Which is why when you look back through history, you see Christians who have done amazing, amazing, incredible things. And we like to put them on a pedestal and think, oh, they were just special, special people. And in one sense, yes, they were special. But they were special because they connected in some way with the power of God that was flowing through them. And that, Paul says, is available to us. We are in no different state to them. Think of anyone that you hold in high regard and the things that they have done. And God is saying, as a community... And this is important because he often places on the individual. But it's not the individual, it's the individual within community. As a community, God is calling us to do incredible things. And I don't know if that fills you with excitement or fills you with fear. I don't know where you are on that spectrum. I seem to fluctuate. (laughs) Some days, yes, we're here to change the world, let's do this. And some days, I can't even get out of bed. What is the point? And so that's where it's really helpful to be part of a community that's thinking these things through. How do we bring systemic change to this part of the world? How do we see peace where there is division? How do we help the poor? Jax is um, reading a book about um, a doctor who's serving in Syria. And um, she was reading it and just burst out into tears. And it just, she read it out to me. It's like, I, I'm preparing a talk. I don't need to hear this right now. But it's just it's awful. There are things going on in the world. We think about like, the environmental crisis. These are huge problems, aren't they? What is the answer to this? Maybe we are, which sounds like crazy to say that, doesn't it? But Jesus is saying, no, a community that is empowered by his spirit can do something. They can bring change. We've seen it happen before. Um, Last year, I talked in the Awaken series about the incredible history we have in this part of London, where we've seen moves of God, where thousands of people find faith, which is what we're praying for. We're praying for renewal in the church and revival outside the church. But more than that, we see a cultural awakening happen where the very fabric of society is changed. That is what we're after. And so this morning, I want, I mean, like, how do we get this? Well, it sounds cliche and trite, but I think we need to pray. We need to pray for the Holy Spirit's power upon us. If you think about um, the book of Acts and the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit poured out upon the people of God, and what happens, they kind of spill out into the streets and they start telling everyone who would listen about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And they gather a crowd. And then Peter stands up and do you know what he says? He reads from the book of Joel, which is another Old Testament prophet. And he says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. Do you see how the spirit is linked to vision? That being filled with the spirit is supposed to give us this insight into what God wants to do. Both like big vision, what Jesus is coming to renew all things, but also now. Like prophetic insight into the thing that God is calling us, each one of us, or as a community. 
to have dreams that are bigger than we could have by ourselves, to see visions. And so that is what we're going to do. Band, if I can have you back. I'm going to invite us to stand in a moment, and I'm just going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon us. And I know there will be some people here that you just, you feel like, I need vision. I don't have vision for this point in my life. And so just be open to God speaking to you. We said this before, when we say God speaking, that can sound very like out there, like booming voice. We, that's not how I understand the voice of God in my life. Just God will drop things into your mind. He'll remind you of things. Remind you of promises. Remind you of things that excite you. Maybe this morning that's what you need. Just need to say, God, I need a vision for this part of my life. Maybe you have grown up in church and you've just grown very skeptical of seeing God move. I grew up uh, in church, and in the 90s, there was a huge talk about revival, which we just never saw. And there's, like, there's a skepticism in me now of people finding faith, of many people finding faith. Maybe you're there too. Maybe God this morning wants to speak to you and say, no, there are big things happening, things that you wouldn't understand or believe, and even if I told you now, but get on board with this. I'm at work in your generation. Maybe you are someone who's living with a real vision, that you know what you want to be doing, and God just wants to give you courage and power this morning to persevere. Because many of these things that we long for, they're not kind of a week or two weeks or months. They're not even years. They're decades. Maybe even outside of our lifetime that we're working to. But God wants to help you persevere in that. Or maybe you feel like you are ambitious, but maybe your ambition has been like tapered off to the wrong thing, and you're feeling, actually, yeah, I'm driven by this need to be loved. And God just wants to show his love to you again this morning. So why don't we stand? Unfortunately, I have to head off to another service. But I'm going to pray for you and then uh, leave you in the capable hands of Trev and Johnny. Holy Spirit, I pray right now you would fall upon us. I pray right now we'd experience something of your closeness. That you would make the love of Jesus alive to us in a new and a fresh way. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come now and you would give people vision of what you want them to be doing in this season of their life. I pray that you would constrain them with that vision, that they wouldn't get blown from one thing to another. They wouldn't just be doing things that other people are doing or the things that are expected of them. But they would live with a clear vision of, no, this is what I want to see. I pray that for all of us, you would help us dream bigger dreams of what is possible. And Father, I pray that you would make us a people that is willing to do hard things for you, that is willing to sacrifice, that is willing to get less sleep and have less leisure, Lord, in order to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray you would help us to work out how we do this in community, how we support one another, one another in the different visions you've given us, how we do something greater together than we could do apart. Holy Spirit, we trust that the things you have called us to do, you will equip us to do, and I just pray for that right now. Fall upon us, Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Christ from the dead in us, I pray, cause that to come out, cause us to believe that in a new way, to rely upon that in a new way, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.